0: Plum Creek Church, and we are a place where you matter. Our mission here is centered around change lives, changing lives. We believe this happens through three important relationships, intimacy with God, intentionality with family, and influence with others. God has something he wants to say specifically to you, wherever you are. Our hope is that you leave encouraged and closer to him than ever before. We'd love to connect with you online at Plum Creek Church, or on social media to see how Plum Creek is impacting our community and what opportunities we have for you and your family to get connected. If you'd like to support the ministry we're doing here in Castle Rock, two easiest ways are through the Give tab on our website or via your mobile device by texting any dollar amount to 720-606-5563. It's a secure connection with simple instructions to get set up. Thanks again for joining us today. We hope you'll enjoy this message.
1: Plum Creek, how are you? Happy Father's Day to the dads that are here. Uh, thank you for being here uh, this weekend. I just want to say a huge thank you to Pastor Emily and our children's ministry team for all of the work that they uh, did this week with our kids. Absolutely amazing. Um, proud of our team, proud of each and every one of you that volunteered and those of you that prayed to. Uh, just that the Lord would use the week to touch our kids. It was incredible. There were a lot of kids here, a lot, and it was awesome to be able to see the investment in those kids' lives. So thank you for what you uh, did this week, one of the best weeks of our year for sure. Welcome to week three of our summer series. Been a great series so far. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of James, and I wanna thank those of you too, almost 500 of you now, that, um, that have uh, signed up for our text service that we're using. If you would text the word James to 40650, we would invite you to have this experience with us as we've walked through James Be more than just on the weekends. So we'll be sending you little reminders, be helping you to be able to think about um, other things that, um, that uh, we will be challenging you with, things that will um, also remind you what to read so that you can stay up with us as we're working through um, this series. So thank you for doing that. We live in a culture where this week's topic is evident at epidemic levels. Um, It's encouraging in some ways that it's not a new problem, but you'd think we'd have it figured out by now, but we don't. Uh, We live in a culture, and you've probably seen this, experienced this, and Uh, maybe you've uh, even felt it a little bit on either sides of this uh, kind of challenge and this problem is this, that oftentimes we evaluate people and treat people differently depending on a few things. If they're rich and famous, don't you think the rich and famous get preferential treatment? Don't you think those that have uh, maybe some extra cash, more power, celebrities, I wonder what it would be like today if Carrie Underwood was sitting over there and Steph Curry was sitting over here. I bet you we'd all be like, dude, I think that's Carrie Underwood. She better be closing the service, right? But oftentimes, uh, these people um, are treated differently, and we've seen this often. We've almost gotten to the place where we bought the lie that the stuff that they have is literally the secret to life, right? If we could just have resource and power and position, if we could have some notoriety and be famous, then that's really, boy, that would be the life, wouldn't it? When I was in high school, I participated in a uh, couple of the musicals, and uh, it was fun to be able to learn some of the music that I'd heard my mom and dad love so much. Do you guys remember the music? Oh, um, uh, you guys do those before? You love, you love the musicals? You love some of the songs that are part of them? Perhaps you remember the musical Fiddler on the Roof. Do you remember that one? Fiddler on the Roof, yeah. Great songs in that, in that um, main hit. And you might remember the notorious milkman Teve. Do you remember him? And he sang this song. Do you remember the song? If I were a rich man, do you remember that song? Some of you are like, do you want me to sing it? (laughs) Well, as you know well, that ain't happening, right? That ain't happening. But I am going to read to you the last little part of this song that he sang because it kind of sets the tone for today, helps reinforce what I'm talking about. If I were rich, the most important men in town would come to fawn on me. They would ask me to advise them like Solomon the Wise, posing problems that would cross a rabbi's eyes. Listen carefully, and it won't make one bit of difference if I answer right or wrong. When you're rich, they think you really know. Kinda true, huh? Preferential treatment sometimes. We think that way, that if you're rich and smart and successful, that you possess the secrets to life. People treat you differently. However, if you're on the other side of the coin and you're not rich, powerful, smart, or successful, it's likely you get treated a completely different way. And there's something about that that just doesn't seem right, does it? A matter of fact, what we're gonna be talking about today, the James, through the inspiration of God, is gonna challenge us. And before I get into that, I wanna set a little context to help you understand, because I think this will really help you get it, to really understand the culture that he was speaking to in the first century. You guys, Roman Empire, right? Very powerful Um, very powerful empire that really had this kind of thing that we're talking about, favoritism and elitism, just kind of built into their culture. There's a biblical historian uh, and a seminary professor named Joe Hellerman, and he wrote about the Roman Empire a lot and what life was like during this time. And he said that there was a huge divide between the haves and the have-nots. In the ancient world, about 2% of the population in the Roman Empire were part of the elite For example, you've heard of the senators, right? The senators, there were 600 of them in their culture and they were the the upper echelon, the top of the top. Heard of a toga? Oh, check this out. They got to wear special togas with a purple stripe. And if you weren't a senator, it was literally against the law to wear a purple striped toga, which would make most of us just want to wear one, right? Like what? Like what? But the upper 2% were the senators and the equestrians. And and then everybody else, the remaining 98% was not so elite. And they were called, you almost got to kind of say it while you're clearing your throat, the vulgus. Can you say vulgus? Now that wasn't bad enough. The vulgus. Say it again. That's better. Do you know what that real translation of vulgus is? The unwashed masses. Makes you just want to sign up and be part of it, doesn't it? One ancient writer had an interesting observation about this and said this, the existence of inferiors is good for superiors for it enables them to point out who they are superior over. Kind of feels like life sometimes. And you have to, you have to see that this permeated every aspect of their culture. The seats that you got um, at the Coliseum and for shows, it was seen in the courtroom where things were kind of stacked against you. If you weren't part of the elite as a matter of fact, likely you've heard of the crucifixion invented by the Persians and perfected by the Romans. If you were a Roman, you couldn't be crucified because it was it was, a, it was a form of capital punishment that was meant to literally humiliate you, to show that you were the lowest of the low. And I'm sure you've heard that into the great Roman Empire emerged this very focused community, and the guy that they revered the most ended up being Crucified, crucified. It's interesting to me. And so if you're not careful, you can go past these things too quickly and not understand the context that James was writing to. And I don't want you to miss how amazing this is. Um, Here's a picture that I want to show you uh, that we saw at the famous Colosseum in Rome. And the Colosseum is in shambles. And there in the middle of the Colosseum stands a cross. Have any of you seen it before? this reverse engineered form of capital punishment that thou stands even though the Roman Empire has crumbled around it. That cross means something different today than it did back then. Just reminding us that the strongest empire in the world wasn't strong enough to hold Jesus back. Isn't that awesome? What a great reminder for us today. And if you think this book that we're studying this summer is just some practical things to do, you're missing the reality of how Jesus and his followers And his brother, James, literally turned the world upside down. So I want you to listen to what James said, and this would have rocked their world, and it continues to rock our world today. James chapter 2, verse 1, my dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? Jump down to verse three. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but say to the poor one, you can stand over there or else sit on the floor. Well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? And then look at verse eight. Yes, indeed. It is good when you obey the royal law as found in the scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you are Committing sin, you are guilty of breaking the law. Again, remember the culture that James spoke this into. This would have been game-changing news for them because favoritism and prejudice and treating people according to their rank and their position was just part of the way things went. And James comes into this, onto the scene and says, listen, I've heard my brother talk about this and I've seen him live this It can't be so in this community that call themselves Christ followers. We don't show favoritism and we don't treat people differently. We treat everyone the way that we would want to be treated. Why? Because God has no favorites. Because God loves everyone equally and that means that everyone is of equal worth. And then this gets repeated over and over when you read the Gospels and when you read the New Testament. Peter talked about it. Paul talked about it. James talked about it. There is no favoritism with God. You might find this interesting that many theologians and historians say that when James wrote this and when he confronted the sin of favoritism, and we could call it other things, we could call it racism, we could call it judgmentalism, all kinds of different things we could put names to it, that that this was the, that that James literally had to come up with a new word. In the older works of antiquity, you can't even find this word, they say. So James literally, when he was confronting the sin of favoritism, It was a brand new kind of way to communicate this because there was no word to wrap around it. It was the sin for which there was no name in the ancient world. And then today now we live in a culture where we seem to celebrate and give preferential treatment to those that um, have resource based on what school you went to, what side of the tracks you grew up on, what color your skin is, the way they talk, the clothes they wear, the cars they drive, the house they live in, how strong they are, how beautiful they are, that all of a sudden these things then begin to cause us to affect people differently, and James says, no, no. Not if we're Christ followers, and not if we're gonna do this the way Jesus did. Author and theologian Dallas Willard called this the great inversion. When we're talking about the way that we treat people, Jesus did it so different. His followers, the disciples, the apostles, did it differently. He calls it the great inversion. God is now turning everything upside down. He said this transcends human arrangements, culture, politics, everything. It just changed everything. He said the great inversion involves this. In Christ, there are none in the humanly down position so low that they cannot be lifted up by entering God's order right now. And there are none in the humanly up position so high that they can't disregard God's point of view on their lives. The sin of favoritism, racism, judgmentalism, however you wanna call it, um, is very, very real and it's part of our sinful nature, wouldn't you agree? And being so, it's not something that we just need to think about, it's something that this challenge is one that needs to settle deep into our heart and motivate us to do something different, to live differently. Wouldn't you think that 2,000 years would be enough to learn the lesson? Like we've been working on this one for a couple thousand years. And you'd think that somehow over the course of humanity and history that we would be able to learn the importance of treating people fairly. And here's what I would really suppose to be true about you. You don't like it when people don't treat you nicely, especially if it's motivated out of some form of favoritism or judgmentalism or racism. You don't like it when people do that to you. So you'd be very quick to identify it and to not want to experience that in your life. How about only two hundred years ago for us here in the United States, our forefathers of this great country even tried to legislate this into the way that we behave. Do you remember? The founding document of our country says this we hold these truths to be self evident that all men are created equal. To me, this is a really great example of how deeply rooted this problem can be because you think about the time when they wrote those words, they were basically getting this new country started because they wanted to be treated fairly, right? That they didn't want to be mistreated because of their religious beliefs or what They wanted freedom and they, they put as part of the foundation of this country that we live in that we should all understand that we're created equal. Yet at the same time, not recognizing in the very people that are signing the document that we're living in the heights of slavery. That is a great commentary for us today to understand that we must be careful because it's easy to identify when people are treating us unfairly, but much more difficult to see when we're treating others unfairly. So James's challenge to us remains true today. And we all must consider, are we literally treating others the way we would want to be treated as well? Are there people that you think that I think that I'm better than? Does that cause me to treat them in a way that is not kind? In his autobiography, Gandhi wrote that during his student days, he had read the Gospels seriously and considered converting to Christianity. Did you know that? So much so that the gospels had touched his heart that he believed that this could be, the gospel teaching could be the solution to the caste system that so grained against what he was feeling in his soul about the way that we should treat one another. So he made a decision to go to a Christian church and after the service, his plan was to talk to the pastor about Christianity with the hopes to understand it better and maybe even make a decision to become a Christian. And when he entered the sanctuary, the usher refused to give him a seat and told him that he should go worship with his own people. And Gandhi said this, if Christians have caste differences, he said, then I might as well remain a Hindu. And famous, famously, he's quoted later to having said, I'd be a Christian if it weren't for the Christians. We need to take just a minute and talk about that today. Because if there's any group of people that should have this down better than anyone else, it should be those of us that call ourselves Christ followers, don't you think? And yet Gandhi's commentary is not that much different than many of those that haven't made a decision to become Christ followers yet that are on the outside looking in, isn't it? Because I I thought that these people that call themselves Christians would live differently. And so there's this expectation that because we know this truth that we should live differently, and when we don't, it just doesn't mesh well to the culture around us. And so we literally should be leading the way. And I don't believe that you personally can reach your full redemptive potential, or us as a church, we definitely can't reach our full redemptive potential unless we get this in our heart and our soul so that we make a commitment to not think that we're better than anyone else, to not think that we're more spiritual than anyone else, to mistreat people for any reason that we would just be highly committed to treating everyone the way that we would want to be treated. This has got to stop. We as a church should be leading the way. And as Christ followers, there's no excuse for us not to. So I wonder, how are you playing favorites? Who do you think you're better than? Think about the environment that you live in in your neighborhood. Are are there people there that you just kind of, if they just did life like me, right? The neighborhood would work a little better or perhaps someone at work that you treat differently because maybe they're not the boss or their position. For some reason, maybe you treat those that believe the same as you differently than you do others. James' teaching today would tell us, man, you need to stop it. Treat everyone the way that you would wanna be treating. So I think about what we've been doing so far this summer in the book of James. We're like in a heavyweight fight here, guys. And James has got the heavyweight gloves on And he keeps bringing the thunder. His first one was, hey, guys, listen. You're going to go through tough times. And we're all like, don't we know? And he's like, count that as joy. And you're like, what? Right? Why would I do that? Because God is using that stuff to continue to refine your heart and your soul. You're like, oh, dude, James, that's going to take a lifetime to figure out. And then he comes back with another one. Hey, be slow to speak and slow to get angry, but quick to... I said, we're like, oh, James, stop. That's so harder than today. He says, very carefully, think about the way you treat others. Where is it that this favoritism, this sin of racism and judgmentalism and treating people differently than we should has stuck its way into our lives? So this week, as I've been preparing these thoughts, I've been thinking, how are we going to do this? Well, gosh, this is going to take some serious motivation, isn't it? There's gonna to have to be something inside of us that drives us to want to do these things in a different kind of way. It's gonna take passion, it's gonna take intentionality, and listen, if we're honest, it's gonna to have to come from the heart. Because these things are challenging and we're just getting started. So how are we gonna maintain the needed focus and perspective? James would know that we would get to this place. So don't forget, James's brother, Jesus, had some very powerful things to say that oftentimes James repeated. I need you to see what James does here. You remember his brother preached this epic sermon in Matthew chapter five through seven. You remember what it was called? The Sermon on the Mount, yeah. Teaching after teaching, thought after thought. And when Jesus got done, in Matthew chapter seven, he said this, and I need you to hear what he said. In Matthew chapter seven, verse 24, After he finished up this sermon, he said this, anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is, and what's the word he uses? Wise. Like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Basically, Jesus is saying this, look, things are going to get tough, and the life that you build needs to be built on a solid foundation so when you get shaken, you will be able to stand strong. So listen to what I've said And don't just listen to what I said, follow what I say, and you will be wise. But there's another way to respond to Jesus' teachings as well. And a couple of verses later, in verse 26, he says this, but anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey is, and what's the word? Foolish, foolish. Like a person who builds a house on the sand. Again, he's saying, life is going to get crazy. There will be some challenges and difficulties that you'll have to face. The storm is coming. Be careful. And if you hear what I say and don't put it into practice, you're foolish. The life that you live will come crumbling down. If you don't hear and obey, your life will be unsafe because it's built on an unsafe foundation. So just like last week, I told you that I stole my main thought from James's writing. This week, I stole it too, but not from James. So... Don't turn me in, I don't wanna pay royalties on this one. Basically, what James is saying is this, just do it, just do it. Wouldn't that be cool if that was original? I'd be genius, right? And that's what James is saying. He said, listen, you must do it And he's gonna take this to the next level. And here comes the heart, the motivation that we need to do the things that he's talking about. In James chapter one, verse 22, he says this, don't, but don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you are only, and there's the word again. What does he say? Fooling yourselves. And he's quoting Jesus. That's what Jesus just said. James is telling you and I here today that it's not enough to know it, that that's not enough to help just to know it but that we need to do something. That kind of faith that just knows, that kind of believing that just understands falls woefully short, it's just foolish faith. Now we know this, and of course it makes perfect sense, and truthfully, you'd have to agree with me that this is one of the most baffling things about humanity. It's one of the most baffling characteristics of human nature. You see, I'm not short on knowing. I've Been taught a lot, I've read a lot. I guarantee you, I'm much further along on the knowing part than I am the applying part. And I would venture to guess I'm not the only one in the room that carries that same thing to be true in their lives. What does that say about me? What does that say about you? I can tell you what the world looking in says. And I think our world is hungry for people that just don't know about it and hear it but actually do it. There's a well-known pastor in Wisconsin that shared a story along these lines. He was teaching a class in his church about how to study the Bible and how to pick out the commands and the, the things that Jesus said and that others had said that we need to apply to our lives, and he got down to the end of this teaching on how to study the Bible in this method that he was teaching, and so he was reviewing with his class, and he said, listen, class, now, as we're wrapping up, this is so important, remember, again, tell me, what are we supposed to do with Jesus's commands again? A lady, like, she's like, yes, and she said, underline them in blue. (laughs) It isn't that really part of the problem? We got a lot of highlighters out, a lot of things that really, oh, that's a doozy. But all too often, we fail to take it past highlighting stage to application stage. And I think that's part of the problem that we have in the church, and it's so frustrating, isn't it, to see that in other people. You're like, Mm hmm. Or when you're in a sermon, be like, dude, I wish Susie was here today, right? She really needs that one. One of the most challenging times of my life was after I had graduated from college and since then known God's call in my life to get involved in the ministry and I approached my first position with this idealistic enthusiasm about how great it was gonna be to work at the context of the church with a bunch of people that call themselves Christians. It's just gonna be euphoric This is awesome. It's like utopia, right? Until you get there. And it hurts so bad. Do you know why it hurts so bad? Because I expected it to be different because we said we love Jesus. And you know what? My coworkers and people that I was hanging out with were probably saying the same thing about me. But if I was just working in a, in a corporate job, trying to climb the corporate ladder, we kind of would expect having to watch our backside, wouldn't we? We kind of expect that there would be people that would climb right over the top of us with blatant disregard for anything to do with anyone else because they're on a mission. And so we just pay attention because we know they're coming for us, right? But no, not in the, not in the church. Everybody's just going to treat you well. We're all on the same page. And when that did not prove to be true, it hurt. Because just like the world around us, looking at us, thinks something should be different, I so thought something should be different in the context of working in the local church. And we're all guilty of not living what we have learned. And I wonder, if you're like me, how many times in your life have you sensed God's impeccable timing? that you were going through a difficulty, a challenge, there was a tough time in your life, and you were able to experience his reckless pursuit of you because it's just so obvious. Those moments of divine direction, you needed help, and somehow he got the message to you, he communicated his love to you, and he, he gave you the answers to questions that you were asking. Or maybe you were heading in a wrong direction and the consequences were about to get very real and it wasn't going to be consequences that you wanted and yet he lovingly brought his confrontation to you and you heard his voice and the timing was just right. And in your life you knew that he had unmistakably touched your heart. There's no way that it was just coincidence or good luck. It was divine. You had a spiritual moment, and he spoke to you. He showed up, and you know it, and you thought to yourself, I have got to apply this to my life. I need to make a change. And a day went by, and then a couple of days. And then those days became weeks. They turned into months no change months became years and for some it's even decades you know that you heard from him and it was a divine moment you weren't short on understanding and hearing but we were very short in applying and making the change This is really powerful, you see. James's challenge is the real deal, and if we're honest, this is the whole key to us becoming true Christ followers and not just Christ listeners. It's what makes the difference in our life, and today, we need to take a serious look in the mirror, don't we? We need to quiet our hearts. We need to be slow to speak and slow to get angry and let the word do the speaking so that it challenges us to make the changes that we need to change, to go back to what God has told us maybe weeks or months or even years before and ask ourselves, God, will you speak to me again? I wonder what is it that he's been speaking to you about? Are you processing that? Are you leaning into it? Are you letting his challenge continue to change you or are you continuing on the same path over and over again? I know what it is for me and we just have to have an honest self-awareness moment. Like you need to hold up the camera and flip, the, flip it around to look right in your heart and your soul and say, God, show me again what it is. I'm not gonna Photoshop this thing. I just need to be honest. What is it that you've been calling me to do? Ask the Lord to speak to you, and then, listen, just do it. Just do it. And you know what's cool? This is exactly the same word picture that James uses. In James chapter 1, verse 23, he says this. For if you listen to the word and don't obey, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself walk away and forget what you look like. And we read what James is saying here and we think, come on James, who could ever forget what they look like, right? Like that's just ridiculous. You understand again, the cultural context that he's writing that mirrors like we did, like we do. And if we really think about it, isn't that sometimes the way this goes week after week, day after day, you spend time in the word of God, Ugh, that's a doozy. And then off to work we go. Or we hear a message and you're like, geez, man, that just hit right at the right time. Like, how did you know how to do that? Did my mom call you, right? Had to be my spouse, right? And we walk away knowing that God has challenged us and spoken to us, and very quickly, it becomes Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, with no change. James' words get stronger in James chapter 2 verse 14 he says this, what good is it dear brothers and sisters if you say you have faith but don't show it by your actions? That listen carefully, that kind of faith can't save. Or can that kind of faith save anyone? Then look at verse 17, you see faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. And it seems like he just keeps digging into this just a little bit farther. In verse 26, he says, just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. And yet there's a different way to do this. In James 1.25, he says this, but if you look carefully into the perfect law, look carefully at the words that sets you free. And if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. James is saying that we need to have a moment of introspection here today. No excuses. And this week, my mom, she's been helping me with, she does a lot of research for me, and uh, she was uh, just commenting on this passage of scripture, and she said, you know, Doug, well, actually, she said, Dougie, you know, Dougie, we, we talk at church a lot about changed lives changing lives, right? And she said, Doug, how, how are our lives changed as Christ followers? What is it? And it's the word of God. But as the word speaks to us and challenges us, the only way that real change happens is if we begin to apply and do what it says. It's not enough to just know it. We have to apply it. And then, what's so cool, guys, is when that word of God speaks to us and challenges us. It will catch the attention of the world around us because we're doing it so different. And then a changed life really can have impact in changing others as well. But see, it's when we live the real deal, when we don't just find ourselves being listeners of Jesus, but we really become followers of Jesus, living differently. So how, how is this gonna happen? This, uh, just yesterday, I was spending some time with a friend of mine, a dear friend, his name is Gary, it's not Gary Partridge, although he's a dear friend too. Um, and Gary's been going through a lot in his life, how uh, we were hanging out at his house, helping him with some stuff yesterday. And uh, a few months ago, Gary's dad died, and it was a, just, it was a tough season for him, and, and we uh, have spent quite a bit of time talking about that. You guys know this is my second Father's Day without my dad. And so we've been talking about that a lot. And he was just sharing with me some of the things about his dad, and that his dad really loved the Lord. And and uh, so when I was over at his house, he came down with a stack of notebooks that looked like this one. And he put them in front of me, and he said, "Doug, every Christmas, my dad would give me a couple of these notebooks." I was like, "Okay, that's cool." He's like, "Open it up. I want you to see this." He had a whole stack of them. He has two brothers and every Christmas, his dad would give each of them a couple of these. Do you know what's inside of here? These are things that his dad found when the Lord spoke to him in his time where he was reading the word. And you see in his daddy's own handwriting, these principles and these truths that so impacted and touched his life that he just had to share them with his boys. And when you read the words that he's written, I loved a journal, like woefully short, by the way, of the intensity of the things that he has written, the challenge that he extends to his kids, the encouragement that he extended to them. And Gary got up from the table, I had tears running down my face as I was reading what his dad had written.
0: Powerful
1: truths that had not just touched him, but changed him and challenged him so much that he would want to share these things with his boys too. And so listen, as as we're finishing up this together, this Father's Day weekend, can I talk to the dads for just a second? And I'm not gonna say this to make you feel bad or anything, that's not what this is about. Don't look back, look forward from this moment and know this, the toughest place to lead we'll always be leading ourselves, always. And your family desperately needs you to take what we're talking about today seriously. To not let days become weeks and weeks to be months and years and decades, but that your family would see, that your spouse would see, your kids would see, your grandkids would see, that you don't just know about this stuff here, that it's made its way here to the point where it's motivated you to live different. That When you hear the challenge, you're not afraid to talk about it. But it's not just going to be words, it's going to be action. Because James says to believe, to just believe falls short. That these things must change our lives as well. So I finish with this thought. heard a pastor tell the story he was standing at the door as folks were exiting the sanctuary and one of the guys came up to him and said reverend i mean nobody calls us reverend anymore right reverend that was a good one and he grabbed him by the arm and he looked him square in the eyes and he said we'll see we'll see if it was a good one will you bow your heads for just a moment Father, we come before you today, and man, our hearts really have been stirred by James's challenge to us. It's not easy. As we've been walking through this, Lord, we know that listening itself doesn't make us different, but it's a choice to actually do what we're learning. In this moment, I wonder what it is that God's been speaking to you about, because I know he's a speaking God. I know what he's been challenging me with, and I just ask you today, what is it that he's been calling you to do? And this is a week where challenge, the, James's challenge is so real that we need to carefully consider how we're treating each other. And Last week and the week before, equally as powerful. These things are in each of us, and the challenge today, wow, it's, it's powerfully real that we can't just be hearers of the word, but we gotta be doers. And so, Father, in this moment, I ask that you would just move through this auditorium and you would speak to every single one of us that it would be unmistakable today. Perhaps it's something that you've challenged us with days or weeks or months before. Will you rekindle the passion in our heart to address these things with more than just thought? Lord, I pray you'd be with the dads that are here as well as we celebrate Father's Day and the joy of uh, perhaps the greatest title that we have. That when those closest to us call us daddy, that we would understand that that title comes with responsibility. And if we claim to be Christ followers, then follow we must. Help us. Help us, Lord, to lead ourselves well. To not shirk back from the responsibility to allow the word to speak to us, but not just so that we will have heard it, but so we do it. Let this be that kind of week, Lord, where we take what we've heard and learned and we apply it to our lives. In your name we pray, amen.